Oh, good morning. Uh, during the season of Lent, we're going to be taking a break from our long journey through Mark's gospel to focus, as we do each Lent, on a spiritual practice. This time, it is the practice and the art of reading scripture for formation. Uh, I've said this a lot of times before, but that spiritual formation is simply a fact of human existence. Whether you uh, call yourself a believer in Jesus or not, or don't know where you are on that scale, spiritual formation is something that simply happens to us. It's, we are all being shaped by something. And for those who follow Jesus, the question is, how are we, we being shaped by the story of which Jesus is the fulfillment and the end of that story? In other words, how do we enter into this strange world of the Bible? Now, there are a lot of places we could start with a series on how to read Scripture. We could start with, you know, all of the problems and all the questions that late modern people, particularly those in a kind of urban, secular center like ours have with the Bible itself. Uh, if you've read it, and I mean all of it, you know there's some gnarly stuff in there. Like, why do Lot's daughters think it's a good idea to get their dad drunk and sleep with them so that they can carry on the family line? Have you read that story? Gross. Or why does Abraham tell everyone that Sarah is his sister, and then they get all upset when they find out that she's actually his wife, and then the third time this happens, we find out that she is both his sister and his wife. Again, ew. How is it exactly that Jacob does not recognize Leah on their wedding night, right? Like, these are the things, this is, all, this is just the first book of the Bible. There's a lot of, like, cringy stuff in there. There's genocide, there's honor killing, there's incest, there's a woman who drives a tent peg through some dude's head. Actually, that story's pretty rad. And that's like, you know, rad in a lifetime television for women, you get him, sister, kind of way. Not in like, you know, not like a nonviolent ethic of Jesus sort of way. But add to that, there are all kinds of like miracles. The, the world of the Bible assumes a spiritual substructure to reality that most of us have been trained to think of as like pre-modern myth or as arising out of a kind of God of the gaps theology that posits a supernatural presence in the face of all the things that science just hasn't figured out yet. But now, you know, we all have infinity in our pockets. So like what gaps are there left? Not to mention there are all kinds of moral and ethical teachings in the Bible that cut across the grain of our culture. And not everything in there will easily map with either the conservative right or the progressive left. If you are a hardcore ideological maximalist on either end of the spectrum and you read the Bible, you will find yourself getting mad a whole lot of the time. And all this is to say, we are becoming less and less sure as a culture of what to do with this thing we have come to know as the Bible. American Bible Society every year does a, uh, a study on what people's levels of spiritual engagement is with reading scripture. Um, and they have found the sharpest movement toward disengagement uh, at the end of 2022 than any other previous year that they have been recording this. And this is reflected in our culture as well. I mean, there are no shortage of uh, Twitter feeds or, or TikTok videos featuring ex-evangelicals who are actively in the process of deconstructing their faith. 
And I say all of that with great sympathy, not as a swipe at all. There are many people who have come to see the Bible as an obstacle to faith rather than as an aid to faith. My parents' generation could read a story like the Battle of Jericho and spend a whole you know, you know, sermon about you know, this, this idea of Israel marching around the city seven times. I mean, doesn't that just feel like a metaphor for life? You're just moving in circles and nothing is happening, but just wait. God is faithful. What is your Jericho? What do you need God to topple? Turn the whole thing into an allegory about you know, self-fulfillment. Spoiler alert. That story is not about you. Gen Z is more likely to read a, a book like Joshua and say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out, time out. How is this not genocide? What are we supposed to do with that? I, like, isn't this just a crusade? Isn't this violence begetting violence? What, what do we do with this? I heard a pastor recently reflect on his experience that more and more of his friends are becoming what he described as post-Bible Christians, which in his experience and in mine is just one subway stop short of becoming a post-Christian. And I get that. Like, no judgment here. Uh, for those of you who are into, like, the Myers-Briggs typology based on Jungian psychology, um, somebody pointed out to me, I'm, I'm an INTGA, and one of those people pointed out that that is the most likely personality type to be an atheist. Which I gotta say, thanks God, not super helpful in my line of work. But all that is to say, I, I get it. I'm somewhat skeptical by nature. I have a lot of sympathy for those who are still working out their relationship with God and with, with the Bible. And, and, and if that's where you are, you will likely have to go through something that I went through in my, my late 20s, something close to what the philosopher Paul Ricoeur calls the second naivety. This idea of this posture of learning how to read the Bible and reread the Bible so as to trust God through the scriptures, not in spite of them. So yeah, we can start there. We could take months. We could unpack all of the questions and all of the problems that you have with the Bible. And we could find that there are some good answers for some of them, not so good answers for some of them. I certainly don't have all the answers. I may, I, maybe I don't even have most of the answers. But the problem with starting there is that in a sense, that would be to place ourselves over the text. Reminds me of an article that I read in the New Yorker a while back that was about new methods of teaching junior high students how to read Shakespeare. And some of you are wondering, like, why would anyone want to do that? Like, well, one of the ideas in that was to assign the students all kind of different versions of the play, all the folio editions that Shakespeare wrote of the play, and have them pick the one that they liked best. Or to, if they didn't like the way the story ended, to rewrite it and resolve it the way that they would like to see the story go. And I get that. I used to be an English teacher. Um, it's a way of getting students involved with the story to, uh, you know, kind of see themselves in it, to assert their vision over the story. But the thing is, to quote Hamlet, the play is the thing. Like the only way you can actually understand Shakespeare is to act it out, to inhabit the story, to enter into its world, and to let that story actually kind of shape you and take you somewhere. And that's just Shakespeare, right? 
I'm talking about the Bible. When we come to the Bible and we, we place ourselves over the text, we set ourselves up as the judge and the jury, like that's simply not the heart posture of a disciple of Jesus. So we won't start there. We could then start with what does the Bible say about itself? And that would be fine. Um, and there's certainly like all kinds of interesting off ramps. There's all kinds of like side roads we could go. There's all kinds of theological and historical rabbit holes that we could go down. Uh, we could talk about the canon and how this library of writings that was assembled over hundreds of years by vastly different authors and these different languages that all had their own kind of symbolic worlds, how all that came to be known as the Holy Bible. And Bible just means book. And, and that would, you know, fascinate some of you. That would certainly bore some of you, and that would make some of you mad. So that might be fun. But here's the thing. If you're here, and you already trust the Bible, you don't need that. And if you're here, and you don't trust the Bible, or you're not sure you want to, or you're not sure what to do with it, then my telling you what the Bible says about itself, that's kind of something of a non-starter. You might just as well be thinking, well, why not start with the, you know, the Vedas or the Upanishads or any other sort of religious text? Uh, for that matter, why not start with the editorial section of the New York Times? It'd be like meeting somebody for the first time and them saying to you, you should trust me because I'm a trustworthy person. Like, how's that going to go? But again, though in very different ways, each of those starting points assume that we are the subject and the Bible is the object that we control in some way. And when we stand, when we keep the Bible at a distance, when we put ourselves over it, this is a way of trying to gain control over it. And control is fundamentally incompatible with a life of apprenticeship to Jesus and to practicing his overall way of life. Our formation is not measured by how much we know about the Bible, or dare I say, even how much we read the Bible. It is measured by how well we inhabit the story how we are shaped by that story, by the Spirit, to become a person of love who reflects the image of Jesus. Like, that is it. That is the end game to our reading of Scripture, to look like Jesus. And it's possible to read the Bible a ton, to know it forwards and backwards, and still be disagreeable to your neighbors, a tyrant to your family, and a jerk to your co-workers. Like this was Jesus' central problem. This is his big beef with the Pharisees. He tells them in John's gospel, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. You have missed the whole plot of what these scriptures are about. You don't know them. You don't know the God behind them. And we've all known people, or at least known about them, who are incredibly knowledgeable about the Bible, but then who use that knowledge to manipulate, to control, to wound others, instead of allowing it to shape them into a person who resembles the one at the heart of the story. But, at the same time, and please hear me in this, 
It would be a mistake to assume that you can be transformed into a person of love in the way of Jesus without the Bible. At an intuitive level, and of course this is orthodox theology, we've come to understand that the Bible and Jesus go hand in hand. We do not come to an understanding of Jesus without the Bible, but we also do not come to the scriptures fully without the same spirit that was in Jesus. So I'm going to propose that this is where we begin, not with all the problems we have with the Bible, not with even the Bible itself, but the one who is at the heart of its story with Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus trusted the Bible as scripture, and if we're going to follow him, so should we. After all, Jesus comes to us as a rabbi, as one who is a teacher, And what he taught was the nature of reality in the kingdom of God as expressed through the scriptures of his day, the the Old Testament. And, And the gospels depicted Jesus who would go regularly into the synagogues, who would read from the scroll containing the Hebrew scriptures, and he would teach from it as one who had authority. And a lot of times, Jesus would take exception to how other people were reading the Bible and how they were teaching the Bible. Because his mind and his imagination were shaped by the story. He most likely had all of the Old Testament memorized. His very identity, his very sense of self, and his mission were bound up in the story of the scriptures. He did not see himself as in opposition to them, but as the continuity and the fulfillment of those scriptures. And one of the things that we see in Jesus' life throughout the Gospels is that he had a very, very high view of the scriptures. Whenever he is engaged in conversation with people, whether that is the the religious leaders or whether that is the crowds or whether that's the, the political powers that be or even with Satan himself, what is he quoting from? He's quoting from the scriptures. And so my point is simply this, that those who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus read the Bible because Jesus reads the Bible. Because we seek to be with him because we seek to be shaped by him, because we want to bear his image in the world. There is no way of following Jesus that does not include treating the Bible the same way that he did, as scripture. I love how Andrew Wilson puts it in a little book called Unbreakable. He writes this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So let's start off with Jesus, whose life was saturated by the story. If you're still with me, go to Mark, or sorry, not Mark, Matthew. We're going to go to chapter 5, starting at verse 16. I've gotten so used to saying Mark because we've been in it for like 10 years. Uh, A couple years ago, we walked through this section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' most expansive teaching about what life in the kingdom of God was like. Uh, It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And at the very beginning, he answers some questions about his relationship to the scriptures, about his mission and his understanding of what the scriptures had to do with his mission in the world. And I'm going to kind of read through this, these few verses. I'm going to unpack it along the way. The fancy technical term for that is exegesis. Before turning to what it means for us and how we come to the scriptures as apprentices of Jesus. Jesus said, 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, uh, the shorthand for the the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, The word here for abolish is a word, kataluo, which just, I love to say it. It's very fun. And it means to demolish or to destroy, to tear something down like a building or something like that. Or it means to overthrow something as an act of subversion. And this is just a reminder that Jesus' teaching was often controversial. Like as we have seen in Mark's gospel, particularly it was controversial around things that were central to Israel's identity, like the Sabbath. His teaching and his authority in that teaching ran afoul of the power brokers of his day to the extent that many of them accused him of blasphemy, of coming to, in our parlance, deconstruct the scriptures. But he says, no, I have not come to abolish the scriptures. I have not come to diminish them or to lessen their, their centrality as a rule of faith and life, as a source of wisdom, of knowledge about God, as a word from God in human words. But neither has he come to maintain the status quo. Instead, he has come to fulfill the scriptures, which is to say that he has to ensure that the the story that the Bible tells that is leading up to him happens. Not the least bit of it will go away. He goes on. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen by any means will disappear from the law until it is accomplished. That is, until he brings it to completion at the renewal of all things. Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices, there's that word I love, and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who sets it aside, anyone who relaxes it, anyone who teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus' take on the scriptures is take them seriously, practice them, get them into your muscle memory because there is a relationship between how well you inhabit the scriptures and how well you will live out the life of the kingdom in the world. And Jesus teaches and interprets the Bible. He, when he does this, he makes no bones that some ways of reading it are better than others. He goes on in that same Sermon on the Mount to kind of do a survey of all of the popular interpretations of the Bible of his day. You have heard that it was said, and then he'll list a, a current take on murder or taking oaths or adultery or what have you. And after describing this, he will say, but I say to you, And then he will reframe the entire teaching to disclose the heart of the kingdom behind it. And over and over again, he is described as one who teaches with authority. We'll unpack that in a few weeks. But for this morning, it's enough to note that at least to Jesus, not every interpretation is valid. There are some that are good. There are some that are not. And this, of course has been the church's dilemma for two millennia. 
And it's very hard for our reading of the Bible not to get sucked into and controlled by, on some level, the culture wars that are happening around us. On the one hand, on the entirely you know, secular version of reality, the Bible is no more than a human document. Like, yeah, it might have some historical value in that it might contain a reflection of how people thought it, about the divine at a particular moment in time, but it's outdated. It's full of, you know, misogyny, theocracy, every ism that we good, modern, secular people want to avoid. And because of that, there's this great distance between it, its culture, its time, and ours. Therefore, we don't, you know, I have to take all that stuff very seriously. But, you know, there's some good stuff in there, right? There's, there's, there's some some good principles for living. So, you know, chew the meat, spit out the bones. As long as the bones look like what we already agree with. But, and also, you know, who knows how this whole thing was put together. James Cameron did a documentary on why we shouldn't trust it. And that dude, like, directed Avatar. So, he's got cred, right? But, you know, still, might be worth a read. If for no other reason than you want to understand, you know, things like Milton or Dante or James Baldwin or, or Bach. Or it's a view of the Bible that takes it seriously as literature, takes it seriously as a, a human document. But it does not take seriously the idea that God is involved in the process at all. But then you've got, on the other hand, kind of on the, the fundamentalist end of the spectrum, uh, something like what we see in Caravaggio's painting of the inspiration of St. Matthew. Right? He's just kind of there, eyes glazed, not really involved in the, the story at all. He's there kind of, kind of trance-like, slavishly writing down whatever it is that the angel whispers in his ear or enumerates on his fingers. Put it this way. Don't put it that way. This view is what scholars call Biblicism. It elevates the Bible almost to a status with the Trinity, treats the Bible largely as a set of rules and regulations. I once heard the acronym B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. So cringy. And in this view, the Bible is a document dropped down from heaven with no human writers involved, only except to write, you know, to hold the pen while God dictated the words. Now that view takes the Bible seriously as scripture, but it does not take seriously the idea that humans were involved or that the primary form of the Bible is not rules and regulations, but a story. So the question is, is there a way to navigate our reading of Scripture that avoids the monster on one side and the whirlpool on the other? And I think the best answer to that question is found in how God approaches us. Again and again throughout the story that the Scriptures bear witness to, God chooses to exercise His authority through human agents who are empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit. God does not come down to oppose all opposition and crush all of it. He comes meaningfully, gently, mercifully into space and time to reveal himself in judgment for sure, but also in mercy in a way that will draw people to himself. We see this in the prophets. We see this in the Psalms. 
we see this best in Jesus. God becomes incarnate, takes on flesh to reveal himself to us. So why would God be above using human words to communicate what he wants to say to us? In that spirit, the Bible is a collection of writings that are both divine and human, not one or the other. And together, somehow in that mystery, they tell the true story of God's grace in Jesus and how we are to live humbly and responsively within that story. And as best as I can tell, this is how Paul describes Scripture in a letter that he writes to his apprentice, Timothy. Uh, Written toward the end of his life, he's passing on some sage wisdom from one church leader to another, from one generation to the next. And he describes the nature and the role of Scripture like this. Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from those from whom you have learned it. Right? There's people involved in teaching him. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed. And the word that he uses here is theonustos. It appears to be this, this term that Paul coined to describe the Spirit giving life to the Scriptures, similar to the way that God gave gave life, gave uh, breath into the lungs of Adam. And he goes on. And this Bible, this scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. His point to this emerging leader is that the Bible isn't just something that the, the authors made up. They were somehow, in a profound and mysterious way, inspired by God. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. He says, Inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by His Spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were books God intended His people to have. It has an origin beyond them. It is yet at the same time, unmistakably human writing that bears the marks of its author's thoughts, its author's style, its author's language, its author's culture. God uses human ideas and human language to communicate to humans because the God of the Bible is in the habit of taking on flesh. It tells us enough of who God is for us to know all that we need to know about God, to live creatively and responsibly in the world with God. So that leads to the question then, well, if that's what it is, what is it for? And in that same letter, I love how Paul just spells out four things. I'll go over them real fast. It's useful for teaching, leading us into whole new possibilities about the way of the kingdom in and through Jesus, for rebuking, revealing all of the ways that we are out of alignment with the way of Jesus and his kingdom, for correcting, bringing us back into alignment with the kingdom, and training in the overall process of becoming mature so that we can be equipped for every good work. 
Another way of saying that is so that we can be suited for our nature as beings who were made to bear God's image. This is the telos. This is the end, the purpose of Scripture. It is to shape us by God's Spirit into who we truly are. Again, we come to the Bible to be with Jesus, to be shaped in His image so that we can bear that image out in the world and do the things that He would do if He were us. But even if you know what the Bible is and you know what the Bible is for, there is still the matter of how we come to it. That's why we're going to spend four more weeks on Scripture because reading it well requires way more than just applying the right technique. Reading the Bible as Scripture requires a fundamentally different way of interacting with the text than we are used to. It requires a different posture of the heart. We've been trained from the moment that we're kids to read for information instead of reading for formation. Uh, From the second that we encounter any kind of written word, we are governed by a set of assumptions, we are governed by a set of dynamics, whether it's because it was drummed into us by the educational system and it's, you know, kind of modernist or postmodern objectives or whatever they might be. We have been taught to approach the scriptures, anything that we're reading for that matter, from the perspective that we are the controlling power whose task it is to master a body of information so that we can somehow get behind the text and get the real meaning behind it so that we can then use that meaning and that information for our ends. We have a kind of functional and mechanical way of looking at what a text is. And that's true whether we're looking at a cookbook, whether we are looking at a newspaper, whether we are looking at something for spiritual growth. We are trained to believe that we are the ones who are in control of how we understand, how we interpret, and also what we do with that information. In a sense, we place ourselves as masters over the text. And, and that's not all bad. I mean, that's, that, there are some forms of reading where that is absolutely necessary. And even in reading the Bible, there is a time and a place for that. There is information. There is content. There is context. There is historical critical approaches that un- unfold and unpack some of the layers between the world of the Bible and our world. And all that stuff has its place. But the problem is if you're only reading Scripture for information, that is going to have an inverse Uh, effect on your own formation. We can easily read into the scripture our own set of beliefs and our own opinions about the way things are or the way things ought to be, which in turn puts us in a position to either go around the meaning of the text or to ignore it altogether when it runs contrary to what we want it to say. But genuine spiritual formation flips this paradigm around. In the words of the biblical scholar Robert Mulholland, who taught for many years at Asbury, which has been in the news lately for a revival that is happening there, he writes, "The, the purpose of formational reading is this, to allow the text to master you. In reading the Bible, this means we come to the text with an openness to hear, to receive, to respond, to be a servant of the word rather than a master of the text. Such openness requires an abandonment of the false self and its habitual temptation 
to control the text for its own purposes. And I think this is the great challenge of reading the Bible in our day. It's learning how to give up the illusion that we are in control. Control over our life. Control over our circumstance. Control over our relationships. Control over our morality. As long as I am the one who needs to be in control, I am not free. And I don't know about you, but at least in my life, when the Spirit is doing deep work in me, it is absolutely disorienting. It is not like, you know, I'm in the flow where I'm like, oh man, everything's groovy and I'm just cruising along with Jesus. I'm living my best life ever. More often than not, it's what the heck is going on right now? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about dying to self. It's a matter of yielding. It's a matter of surrender. Living in the rule and reign of God means that you are not in control. We do not come to Scripture as a project of self-improvement. We come to learn from Jesus how to die to the self that we are trying to improve. And so as we enter into these weeks that are leading up to Easter, the invitation as a church is simply to enter into what one author called this book of strange new things. And that's what we're going to be looking at during Lent. We have a community and a practice guide that will lead us in how to read the scriptures for formation. And the practice on the docket for the first week is simply to find a place to start to start as you can. That is the spirit of all of the disciplines, to start as you are able, not as you think you should. But find some time to engage with Scripture. Do it quietly. Do it slowly. There's no rush to get beyond it. There's no, there's no you, know, uh, you know, alarm bell that's going to go off at the, at, the, at the end. You did it! You got through verse 35. Yay, you! I mean, that would be kind of nice sometimes, but... The point is to simply to open yourself up to it, to open yourself up to God, to ask God, what are you saying? It's the posture of the boy Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And if you're not in a community group, uh, I encourage you, you know, maybe get coffee with someone who is a follower of Jesus and just read along with them. Find something and, and find a place to talk about what you read and invite Jesus to be present in the midst of that. And when you do, focus on the posture of your heart what do you notice in your body when you read? Are you getting tense? Are you feeling free? And that's important because I think coming to Scripture is often where we are most at odds with God. With all of the things that are shaping us, Scripture is a counterformation to all of the daily ways that we are being, you know, shaped by all of the things, whatever disciplinary mechanisms that are on our screens. It's one of the ways that we consciously partner with the Spirit to open ourselves up to God. We go here to find the true story and how we can read the world through it and how God can read us through it. And to ask, am I becoming a person who expresses the love and the hope of the kingdom with my words, with my with my body, with my things, with my life, 
with the way that I exist in community, the way I spend my money, or all the ways that I bear hope in my bones, do they look like Jesus? And the scriptures are a way to filter out the story. It looks like this, it doesn't look like that. And we come ultimately simply to meet with God. To experience this moment. To encounter the overlap between heaven and earth. To have in that moment open to the spirit. And in that moment to be shaped in a more profound way than any other story you will ever find. 